1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Miriam Schorli-Schultz and I'm one of the hosts of this channel. I am really happy to welcome Frank Wolf to the show today. Frank is a senior researcher in modern and contemporary history at the University of Osnabrück and a board member of the Institute for Migration Research and Intercultural Studies with a focus on historical border regimes, Jewish history and law and social history and on approaches to the mediation of history and public history. Starting in the summer, he will lead a research group on border studies at the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies at Bielefeld University. And Frank is also the author of Yiddish Revolutionaries in Migration, the Transnational History of the Jewish Labor Bund, an exciting study of one of the most important global revolutionary movements, the um, Allgemeine Jiddische Arbeiterbund or the General Jewish Labor Bund, which came out in 2022 with Haymarket Books. Hi, Frank. Um, wonderful to have you and welcome to the show. Um, Hi, Miriam.
0: Thanks for inviting me.
1: Of course, anytime. Okay, let's start. Um, you start your introduction with a really curious anecdote of Daniel Cohn Bendit, um, a figurehead of the European left, giving a lecture in Moscow in 2005 that is somewhat timely insofar as we are about to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Um, so, though Kun bendit was meant to talk about the Cultural Revolution of 1968, as far as I understood, he started his lecture with a historical digression that caused some commotion among the audience. So let me read this exchange and then I come to my first question. So he started out, I quote, "Um, given that I'm in Russia now, I just happened to go through my bookshelf last night because naturally I wanted to learn something about Russia. By coincidence, I came across this book. It's the story of Marek Edelman, the last survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto struggle. And he in turn tells the story of the Bund. After all, who still knows the history of the Bund, he asked. And the Moscow audience began to laugh and replied, we know it, we know it. But Convendant wouldn't have it and continued by saying, I quote, it's not a laughing matter because the memory of these people was destroyed by the Stalinists, by the Zionists, by everyone. No one remembers this history this first history, this attempt by workers to organize. They were all Jewish and spoke Yiddish. They didn't want to go to Israel. They fought here in Russia. They fought in Lithuania. They fought in Poland. And the history has been totally erased by the tra- traditional histories of the Zionists and the Stalinists." End quote. So this brings me to my first question. What indeed is the Jewish Labor Mund, And what do people remember and what not? And why has it been mostly forgotten?
0: Wow. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is a huge question, and um, I, I start to to answer it, I think, in, in several layers. So, wonderful that you uh, bring in that uh, Con Bennett quote, which, which I also used um, for the uh, op- for opening of the book, because I think uh, what he is presenting there, or in the discussion, which then unfolds on that, um, are two layers which are really important if you want to approach and understand the history and the recognition of the Bund as a historical actor. It is... One part that the Bund is where people discover the Bund and are completely surprised by this kind of history that is so different from what you think of Jewish organizational and party history. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. And the other part is that doesn't really go into the details they just know about the bund and they they have a feeling about it and they also they all have have it sort of sorted in some cupboard and it's so it's put away and uh, everybody knows what's in there and so you don't have to open it uh, and i think this is part of and, and third part of course is which is why i'm so happy that this book now came out in english are people interested in the bund sons and daughters of Bundists, former par- members or participants in youth camps and everything that the Bund later set up, who are really detached to uh, attached uh, to it and really uh, have a feeling of a very specific history that they've been part of or that they've experienced through their parents or grandparents. and um, And this is just a story that needs to be told again and again in different layers. And so we have different sections, I think, different approaches to the history of the Bund. So why was it so special? <laughs> what you ask is why was it forgotten? Um, in a nutshell, the Bund was um, the then in the uh, or it was founded in 1897 by 13 people in an attic in Vilnia, Vilnius, Vilnius, uh, and. Uh, They were all representatives of different branches of the labor movement, which of course in Tsarist Russia was completely illegal and highly persecuted. So they met in this um, attic to found a roof organization for these labor organizations, which then soon uh, picked up or made a very important strategic and um, essentially cultural choice um, to say, We have to go to the streets to organize the people, the Jews uh, in Tsarist Russia, uh, which at that point included large parts of Poland and what's now Ukraine and Belarus and what was called the Pale of Settlement for um, Jews to live in. And we have to go to these streets and talk in the language of these people, which was Yiddish. And that was a very important shift from what other revolutionary movements tried to do in Tsarist-Russia, which was first to bring the workers to a certain level of education, which meant learning Russian, and then being able to be organized and um, uh, propagated. And uh, the, the Bund said, no, no, we have to start where they are, and we have to go to them, we have to start in these streets. And and then organizations developed, and uh, yeah, they, they really... Yeah. Sprang up all over the uh, rayon, and uh, many many groups emerged. Um, it's a bottom up uh, uh, movement that emerged, and it soon became the largest revolutionary movement in um, Tsarist Russia, which then, in, to be short, uh, became a founding member, founding part of the um, Russian democratic or social democratic party got into trouble with them <laughs> was in and out <laughs> and then was the, the driving one of the main driving forces of the 1905 revolution very much uh, to the dislike uh, of lenin and trotsky and uh, because they had a very different organizational idea about how to approach workers which clashed in 1917 and this is why, also why, then again, the Bund was written out in a way of socialist history by communist history writing, which also clashed in that part uh, with Zionist with the Zionist movement, which emerged at that time or was got got really strong at that time. Um, Because the Bundes said, if we want to go to these streets, we also have to change the conditions in those streets. We don't talk about going somewhere else, talking about creating a new country or setting up a new culture somewhere else. We've got what we want. We just need it to be fair and equal and essentially from a Marxist uh, idea, a class-free society that needs to emerge and that we have to create here. So it was really a local revolutionary movement to begin with, which then became a global movement over the course what I tried to show in my book when people moved and migrated because at that time when the Bund emerged, and we've only talked about the Russian period so far, but in the Russian period when it emerged, it also um, was the time of great Jewish migrations when um, millions of Jews emigrated from Tsarist Russia or later then in the 20s from Poland to the United States to other parts of Europe or to Argentina, and there, they took these identities and these ideas with them. They didn't just leave them behind, and this is where my book picks up and says, okay, we have two layers of a story that I want to tell. The first layer is what's happening in these streets, and the second layer is what are these people taking with them when they go somewhere else?
1: Amazing. Thank you. And thank you also for the contextualization um, with the revolutionary movement in Russia for now. Um, And yes, we will talk more about the actual kind of um, local and transnational component, of course, of the Bund. Um, But so talking about like public memory and also transgenerational memory, of course, there was also scholarship on the Bund, which is, however, surprisingly scant actually for the importance of this movement, I would say, right? Um, So I was curious if you could give us an overview of the scholarship before your book came out and how your study intervenes into the scholarship. Um, So what do you add to previous studies and how do you challenge them?
0: Hmm. Um, there, there was a first, um, the Bund, when we talk about this, I'm sure started writing its own history. It has to do with its own troubled history and how it was written out of history or destroyed by Nazi occupation. And, um, so they, they, um, started to write their own memories, their own history, uh, which then led to a first so it's a wave of uh, a couple of books of uh, and, and a couple of articles on, on of academic studies in the late 60s and 70s on the Bund, which were very much devoted to the organizational history of the Bund. And this was a history of the Bund in Russia only. Uh, so the, it was the part uh, the part of the history from 1897 mostly to 1917. And then the organizational history was told, more or less, was the idea, I think, there. Um other histories went further also, but, but they were only published in Yiddish and the academic studies, which on the Russian period, they were published in English. And they made the Bund more known, more, or, or they reminded many people who have heard of them uh, before of this uh, um, um, historic act. That continued for a while, and then maybe... Uh, 20, 30 years ago, a new wave of books uh, came out um, that was more devoted on the Bund in, in independent Poland and looking at the cultural work in independent Poland, particularly Gertrude Pickhans' book, which only came out in German, but also Jack Jacobs' book on uh, the Bundes counterculture. Um, they were really fundamental books uh, which uh, show um, that. The Bund was, beyond that organizational aspect, also a very important cultural actor in independent Poland. And attached to that then, there was a very good study on the first transnational study um, written by David Siutski on the Bund after the Second World War, which then followed the dispersion of the Bundists all over the world and how they tried to recreate their institutions, which in Melbourne... Are still existent. This is, uh, as far as I know, the only place or, or the only the, the most important place of a true Bundes group where it's still existent. Um, so, and, and and my book, I wrote it at the same time. David wrote his book, and um, there was a, there was an idea uh, that, or for me, there was an idea that I wanted to add two layers. Actually, the first layer was I wanted to connect that history of the Bund with that history of mass migration. And then at that point, at the early point, very much looking at it from a uh, level of a cultural historian, I wanted to look at how did they write their own history? If they go to another place, and for me, these places that I particularly looked at were New York or United States, particularly New York and Argentina and particularly Buenos Aires, um, how did they recreate uh, the social sphere, these memories, um, the cultural realm? that the Bund created with so much energy in, uh, uh, in, in in Eastern Europe, and what did it mean when they then came to um, the United States or uh, Argentina? And I first looked at uh, the, the production of memory texts. I've looked at hundreds of autobiographies written by Bundes. Uh, of them, before that, maybe Fifteen twenty 20 have been received or somehow quoted somewhere else, but there were so, so many, um, f- essentially 532 autobiographies. And then I stopped collecting because I had a, a, a sample that was strong enough. Short, long, Yiddish, mostly 90% Yiddish, but also English, Spanish, uh, very, very different kinds of memory production. But I hit a problem, a problem in that uh, research because I found so many of these cultural production in the United States and so few in Argentina, which then led me, doing that research, to the question of uh, why didn't they write in Argentina? And for me, at some point, then uh, the question changed to what? Okay, because there are different things to do. What were they doing? And this is also part of, uh, in, in that book, where I can see when it's changing to more back to a way of an organizational history. Uh, but continuing that uh, approach to a cultural history of the Bund in transnational uh, exchanges and, and and recreation of ideas in, transnationally. Um and, that, and so how does it contribute to the larger scholarship, I think, is that particular point, to go to the streets somewhere else, to see what is happening there, to understand that there were different, that there were ideas that they took to different settings, and that the Bundes in a very creative way adjusted to those settings, and did not just go to another island and cre- recreate their small clubs on a different island, but Eventually, this is how it started out, but then eventually created a transnational network of Bundism up to the Second World War.
1: Right. But as you show, it's very clear that the Argentinian... Um, Bundes tradition is very different from the American one because mm. it's literally they responded to the conditions that they found themselves in, and I think it's really interesting to consider here the importance of a memory production in in the American context. Also, if we think about Holocaust memory in general, I think um, that really got me thinking. And you you coined this term "memoric," or at least I didn't know about it. Um, can you maybe? explain what you mean by that. And for me, what I really thought was super illuminating is this idea of um, memory writing or history writing as a form of community building and one that is future oriented rather than just looking backward. Right. And so I was also thinking about how this practice might be of relevance for memory practices on the left today, actually.
0: Yeah, um, I think one important difference <laughs> to start with that uh, to the left today is that the Bund started from a strong organization, <laughs> and then yeah worked and create, recreated the memory around that knowledge of a at least formally strong organization, uh, which was really culturally and politically leading a leading a driving force of a uh, new modernist thought. Um, so. The memoric term, yes, this is something that when, when we translated the book, uh, we, we discussed a lot. Um, I had a wonderful translator here. Um, and we kept it in this memoric uh, term to, to introduce it really to say this is just a conceptual term. The idea is or how I approached the Bundes is when I mentioned earlier, when they went to the streets, uh, I say what is really important here is to not think of the Bund so much through the lens of a classical party history. If you look at the Bund, like a party history, you confine yourself to the idea of what a traditional party is. The Bund had a traditional party in its core, but it was much, much more. And so this is also why it's so hard to estimate memberships. So we maybe had, first of all, the Bund Archive, the traditional Bund Archive are destroyed, so we don't have membership cards and everything. They they were destroyed in the Second World War, but... um, we had they were recreated and some th- some parts survived and so on so we have a good idea of what the Bund was uh, through archival sources and um, so at a high point in, in around 1905 it had its 30 35,000 members which was multiple the times the Russian Russian social democratic labor party had yeah but it's still far too small a number because you didn't just become a Bundes by signing in a card and and then you're a party member and you pay your fees. It was a movement that you participated in in the streets in the Städtel, that you and you didn't really even sign up for it at some points you would just became a member and then you grew into it or you were part of it and it became an identity for hundreds of thousands, yeah at least for some part in their life, for many for a longer period in their life. And that meant um, from that identity-forming power that the Bund developed uh, through activism, and this is a term that I really try to carve out in that book, activism or uh, the the activist, the Bundesactivist in in Yiddish, the tour, um, he he was really, uh, the, the idea of a tour, he or she, they really, created the Bund through their own actions. And they could be very different actions. Um, Organization building, uh, union organizing, uh, um, um, creating flags, (laughs) illegally, hiding books. Very, very different kind of activities that you could have in the Bund, which then draw you in. And what I realized at some point starting around 1905 and the revolution is that writing about the origin of the Bund becomes such an activism, form of activism. And that in immigration becomes a very strong form of activism to attach people, even in remote places, to the Bund, which was really called by um, former members to say, let's commemorate this and that, and then let's write about this and that event. Give me more stories about this and that event and publish it here and there in Yiddish. And this is what I call the emerging culture of of the Bund. A large part of that is autobiographical culture, but there's much more memorical culture around it in poems and in songs and in different memory texts, which um, toward the Second World War becomes a book culture. And after the Second World War becomes a very strong Yiddish book culture for a certain period of time, about 20 years maybe. Many, many, many Yiddish books... Solely remoted to memory issues emerge um, on on different groups of people, on places, on, on, on different cities, and so on.
1: Um, yeah, you start um, the book with this beautiful epigraph from Leon Ola, a Bundestag activist who, in 1957, wrote, um, "I quote: The 60-year history of the Bund resembles the life story of a person who lived through his most crucial phases, not only at different times, but in different countries and in light of recent decades on different continents. It's it's beautiful and it." I do think it really captures what you're trying to achieve with your study to show how the Bund is a living organism. Um, but yeah, now that you mentioned that, of course, um, biography writing was such an important part of it. I mean, it really captures in so many ways what you want to do with the study. So maybe you wanna elaborate how you stumbled across this and why, why it made, made it to the first page of your book.
0: I think essentially for the same reason that you just mentioned it, was one of the many uh, reflective comm- commemorative texts on the Bund. And um, Ola wrote this beautiful section. And I said, this speaks so much to the, my whole idea, how I, how I understand Bundists uh, recreated, I call it recreated or reshaped or reconfigured also the Bund in different periods of time and recreated them elsewhere because um, there's something very important about um, that biographical approach. If you look at the history of the Bund from an organizational lens, it makes very much sense to say there is a certain story that goes until 1917. And then there is a new story that emerges after the the revolution and goes until mm, the outbreak of the Second World War. And it makes a lot of sense to say there's a different story, during the Second World War and after it. But there were many people, many Bundists, who just lived through that period and they remained Bundists. And um, they organized their groups and in New York in 1941 created a very influential uh, journal, um, the Unset Zeit and a publishing house and important group around it, um, which just... Sh- at, at first, was a youth experience of revolution. Then, at some point, it became a uh, an identity shaping part of adulthood. Maybe uh, getting a job in the teachers' organization or in some part of the the large network of the social movement the Bund was, and then uh, emigrating to some place, working in something different, maybe being a journalist or being a construction worker, but at the same time trying to stay attached to this very specific identity that they've created and so small groups emerged and they very much devoted time to to memory projects these were also very important and this is part of the book that i so i looked at very 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 many uh journals now and 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 a whole like years of different publications and what i found most interesting apart from the commemorative text were the um the sections of advertisements on different activities and so you could really see what's starting out very early is commemorative meetings where you could meet at a picnic in a park in new york at a specific uh, building in Buenos Aires, you they, they were invited to this and that talk and then maybe later you could even find reflections on that how important that this not that talk what that event was and they sold hundreds of tickets for some of these events or thousands even and um so you can see that there was it, it was really drawing people into uh something that for me in my study is uh, so important to understand that when people from Eastern Europe migrated to the United States we have this idea that they were so busy that they had nothing else to do but and this was part true um, that they had to work so hard and they, there was no time for cultural activities or even looking back but these people they demonstrate how strong it was to um, maintain that identity to Look back, and then to maybe to fundraisers for supporting the revolutionary movement, and or writing or creating books, uh, which then can be sent back, or selling books that were created in Poland or Russia, over there. So um, this network that emerges helps them to recreate this identity as a Bundist and to remain a Bundist, even though the revolutionary core of the Bund. Um, never really emerged in the same way in Buenos Aires or in New York.
1: Yeah, it really, it's really amazing how you show how identity is really a practice rather than just simply an inheritance. So the question emerged to me is um, Is Bundist identity um, really the same in the US and Argentina? And this brings me. Also, to the next question, to one of the crucial aspects of Bund- in the Bundist history, this is the notion of Yiddishkeit, of course. Um, so just generally, what is Yiddishkeit according to a Bundist? and how did the Bund shape this notion actually in turn? Um, and does Yiddishkeit, do we have different Yiddishkites in this world um, because of the migration? Um, yeah, these are the next
0: things that I was curious about. Yeah. It, it, the the core idea of Yiddishkeit, which is a term that the Bund used, um, um, and not just the Bund, but particularly the Bund used, is the idea of understanding, it's literally translated Jewishness, uh, but the, the literal translation doesn't carry the full meaning because it is always connected also to the choice of language, uh, which isn't just any maybe Jewish or any possibly Jewish language or a Jew language that um, could be adopted in diaspora, uh, it's, it's connected to speaking Yiddish and creating Yiddish as a modern language. When it was so, for such a long time, uh, looked upon as a jargon, as, as a, not even a language, just something that is some that, that, that was a product of uh, the, the, the diaspora, which one need to get rid of once a true full life as a nation, maybe, or as integrated into another na- nation emerged. The idea of Yiddishkeit was um, Yiddish is a full modern language and of course created then its own literature, its own heritage, something to be proud of. Uh up to very, uh, very, uh, very high literature, but also very much a basic literature on the streets in the daily use. Um, and the Bund tried to navigate that world, tried to recreate uh, or try to create uh, an, an identity of being proud of speaking Yiddish and continue to speak Yiddish and to use Yiddish as an organizational language for any kind. So it's a full language for everything. They didn't just uh, proclaim it, they lived that. So many of these intellectuals that started out with the Bund, like Vladimir Medan, for instance, he grew up as a well-educated Russian Jew. Uh, He had to learn Yiddish, but he then eventually moved fully into Yiddish. Yeah. Uh, so he took. He went the, the other way around. That was initially, or the earlier generation conceived by um, the, um, the Russian uh, socialists, even the Jewish socialists. Um, so this is the first part of Yiddishkeit, and then, as it is getting connected by the bone through this idea of going through the streets, it's becoming very practical. Um, Yiddishkeit then is getting connected to institutions like schools and youth clubs and um, we have journals, meetings that are very um, widely distributed. And uh, this whole realm we could understand as Yiddishkeit. So... Coming to your, back to your question whether Yiddishkeit was different in different places, um, we can say uh, that there was a general assumption, a sen- general um, agreement about what Yiddishkeit eventually became and what it meant as a practice, as something that needed to be done, that it couldn't just be there, something that uh, needed to be uh, defined uh, by, by, by daily usage. Um, but uh, at the same time, of course, uh, Yiddishkeit played out differently in different places. So if you, if, for instance, if social, Jewish Socialist Bundes came to New York, they entered a, a sphere where a certain Yiddish culture was already existent. The Forbes had already emerged as the leading uh, socialist uh, daily And it wasn't just a daily journal, it was really a network, it was really a huge actor that defined uh, political life in the streets of New York, and uh, also very much uh, looked that there was no different, no second forwards coming up tried to integrate as much as they could, but also to control what was emerging. So at some point they cooperated, the Forbes Association cooperated with the Bundes. At some point they felt a competition and then they started to, yeah. So there was a very different, uh, very specific kind uh, that the um, uh, Bundes could recreate or their own Bundism in New York. When they came to Buenos Aires, there was nothing of that kind. They created, um, they, 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 they recreated a group which I understand as a true Bund, essentially, really shaped after the Bund. It was an Argentinian Bund. It was called the Copa Avantgarde, so a group progress. And um, and they also created their own journal in 1908. And that journal is beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful journal. And I'm so happy it took me a while because the archives didn't really have the whole full run. I now have a full run of the founder. Full run of these, um, of these uh, first three years until they were forbidden, and um, and it's a beautiful journal. And it's very self confident. It's very sure of. We have to go through very diff- various different steps of creating a group um that also went through struggles very similar to the struggles uh, of uh, like those in, in 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 tsarist russia at that time or a few years earlier um so um and it was the first i think I, i'm not fully 100 percent sure, but i think at least when it comes to longer runs it was the first yiddish journal in latin america at all uh there were individual pages in Yiddish, uh, maybe uh, uh, attached to the La Protesta, which was an anarchist journal. But a full run um, in Latin America, like a complete journal that is continuing for a time and not just trying to emerge for a year or two, or for for uh, an an, an exa- uh, a volume or two, um, a number or two. And now I got it. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> um, really continuing monthly in full fashion with everything that you could think of a journal of that time. They were the first um, that the, to, to create that. And they did this very conscious of carrying over idea and organization ideas, notions of Yiddishkeit to uh, Rio de la Plata, trying to have the same confident Yiddish culture, even having language clashes, against Spanish in a very similar fashion like the Bund had against Russian in Russia. And then um, connecting it to union, uh, the creation of unions, later to schools and uh, to other initiatives, which were so similar to the ideas um, what happened in Russia. So I think this was the idea of recreate a Bund in uh, Argentina. So the, the Yiddish played out very differently there, even though the fundament, the basis was very similar to what the Bundes in New York took with them.
1: Great. Amazing. I mean, connected to this question of um I would like to return to the fifth congr- Congress of the Bund, which is um, this year, 120 um, years ago, took place um, then. And um, there were two um, issues that dominated the debate. The upcoming Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party that you've mentioned already, right before... It split into Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, and the national question. And we also see there already kind of a transgenerational um, struggle within the Bund. So um, I'm really curious. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit, but really the relationship to the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, um, specifically, of course, um, the Bolsheviks, um, but also the Mensheviks and then Marxist-Leninism. So why did the split happen? Why didn't they collaborate? Um, Is something that I'm really interested in. Um, And then connected to, I mean, all of this is connected, of course, to this idea of Yiddishkeit. Um, What about the national question? What was their response? And then further, um, take us to um, struggles with other Jewish, secular, social and national movements, such as Soviet Yiddish culture, or Zionism, for that matter. I think all of this is kind of connected, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very much connected. Um, it, it all goes down, I think, comes down to one um, yeah, foundational um, decision that the Bund made, which was connected to going to the streets and being in the streets to the idea of Deutkeit, uh, to work in a place for that place and for the future of that place, and uh, so uh, the idea first was that um, later a uh, also a propaganda or a party poster uh, had this very now very famous slogan on it: "There, where we are living, this is our home." And this was the idea of that um, probably everything's diaspora, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so we have to recreate. We have to. We have to create a fair way of life where we live. This is our home. We don't need to think about going somewhere else. And for a large part of, um, let's say, politically oriented, it's not the majority of Russian Jews, uh, but the po- large part of uh, politically oriented or secular Jews uh, at that point in Russia and later in Poland, it was far more convincing to organize around a revolutionary movement for the classless society than thinking about going to Palestine and create a nation among others. Yeah, So just to have an idea of what the the idea at that point was, it it, it felt completely utopian uh, to to, be just uh, that nation somewhere else. And also for the Bund, it felt unwanted because the idea of the Bund was that then the one slogan was, that, well, then that we would just go to Palestine and exploit each other. What do we win by that? Yeah. Um, they always said we have a double repression that we are living with, repre- um, oppression as Jews and oppression as workers. And this is something that there's no larger or smaller part of that. You both are connected. And in essence, that then led to clashes with the Russian revolutionaries who said class is the more important question here because at that point, ethnic questions, cultural questions, ethnic questions won't be that important. It's about class. Zionist movement on the other hand said, no, it's about uh, in, in the nationality and the location, the territory. Um, and for the Bund territory, was not the question. They were striving for what they called cultural autonomy um, or national cult- cultural autonomy to have within other states... Uh, realms of culture and, and national ideas like Jew, education, communication, public public life that can be autonom- autonomously governed, but it doesn't hurt to be part of a larger empire in that regard um, as an individual group and you don't need a fixed territory. So it was an idea that different ethnicities do not have to separate their own part of Earth, <laughs> of the Earth, to live in that and be happy in there, but to rather co-live and have cultural realms that overlap uh, in, on a territorial level, overlap but are autonomous on a organizational level. And that was inco- incompatible to Zionist ideas. It was, uh, it, it, it was uh, in theory, incomp- incompatible to um, other revolutionary parties, to the Polish uh, socialists, or, as well as to um, the Russian revolutionaries. And that is very well covered in earlier research. What I found in my research when I say I want to understand it as a social movement, not so much as a party, which has these h- harsh claims, I look at practice, and in practice you can see multiple overlaps. Yeah, continuous overlaps between that so you can see bundes working with the uh, worker Zionists in, in, in even creating their own institutions um, and uh, this happened Jack Jacobs wrote about this brilliantly about in the schools in Poland but it also happened in in, in, in Buenos Aires yeah for, for for a long long time and uh, Different uh, corporations, even with anarchists in some points, and uh, and then what is also important, coming back to the biographical questions, many Bundists changed their ideas about the world during their life, and then they moved on to other parts. Still, in many cases, not being uh, the traditional kind of party member um, that was not formally a Bundist. So there was something that they took with them into other idea, um, uh, movements, and that was most importantly the case with uh, Yiddish Soviet culture. Um, <clears throat> when many Bundists, then around 1917, and in 1917 was a very very important year for the Bund globally between 1917 and 1919. Virtually every existing Bundist organization exploded, <laughs> and and they they ended up in two or three branches, at least two. Which uh, said one is more of a, a Menshevik oriented, not Menshevik but Menshevik oriented uh, social democracy and a communist branch of the Bund, and they cre- tried to create a compatibility between Bundist ideas and uh, communism. And many um, Bundists also went to create communism and um, also very famous uh, persons but eventually and, and and the first years they were they first fought for it then were supported for a time to create a Yiddish culture in Soviet Union which for them was the idea of autonomy within in a way yeah even though they never put it that way at that point because it was not compatible to the idea of the Communist Party. But for the Communist Party, it essentially was a mobilizing tool to get more Jews aboard communism through Yiddish culture. All of these actors eventually, or most of these actors, all the leading actors, eventually, even though they very became partially very committed communists, ended up on the show trials in, in Stalinism and were killed or passively killed uh, in that regard in that uh, turn so um, they were seen as illegitimate illegitimate children of uh, communism in a way because they had this different past so there was an idea to uh, become part of other parties but it didn't really play out in the way it was different with zionism some people particularly after second world war went to zionism and they became well working um, labor scientists also um, in uh, Israel, but there were not too many I I know of.
1: Um, Okay, just uh, staying with the theme of uh, socialism, um, I mean, the Bund clearly was transnational, as you show in your book, but obviously as a socialist movement, it had also commitments to socialist internationalism, the idea that workers of the world unite whether you're Jewish or not, right? Um, so I was curious um, if you could enlighten us as to how internationalism was played a role in Bundes activism, also, not just staying in the Jewish sphere, but actually branching out. So
0: one part of the transnationalism that I'm looking at in this book, also, which I think uh, is sort of what I try to write as a, uh, also as a sample study of political transnationalism in in the uh, early 20th century or late 19th century and early 20th century, um, is connected to that Bundes realm. But... Of course, um, transnationalism played out in different uh, ways. And for the Bund, it was also very important to be connected to other parties and um, be part of the d- large international social democracy that emerged at the late 19th century, um, particularly in the earlier. Um, volumes of their journals and their their, their, their their books and leaflets, it was very important to point out that they are accepted in that group. So they printed quotes by Kautsky, they printed quotes by other people, or yeah, and, and they um, had um, German socialists writing letters and they translated them into Yiddish, which somehow either by ideology or by direct addressing accepted uh, the Bund into their part and that had a very practical consequence particularly when we look at the um, Bund in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, on the streets in uh, Tsarist Russia where it was illegal and even though the Bund had its own printing presses it couldn't print all the material that it needed. So it set up smuggling ways and worked with the social democracy, for instance, uh, or Austrian social democrats, um, to smuggle through different routes, uh, smuggle in Yiddish literature, which no, nobody of these smugglers or printers or, or could read, um, and some of the in the memories they say, luckily they couldn't read it, otherwise they would have charged twice, <laughs> um, because it was very dangerous <laughs> to carry that along, and they smuggled that material into Russia and, and then distributed leaflets and flyers uh, on uh, different, let's say, May first or different dates um, where they. Used them on the streets, and this was particularly the case in the uh, before the nineteen oh five revolution. And here that that was connected to that internally Bundes transnationalism. So one thing that I found, um, which hasn't been looked at before, and which is in a way a very complicated question, is um, who pays for a revolution. And um, so, um, so I tried to look at um, what I then call the revolutionary fundraising. Uh, they, they set up groups, fundraising groups all over the world which in only very, very small donations collected on the streets here, a few cents, they're at maximum a dollar, um, uh, to collect that really not going into philanthropy and large sums, which was a big thing at that point in time. Um, but not for the Jews, they really tried to, or they, 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 they practiced, um, and no policy, um, or no acceptance policy of large donations. It needed to be small. It needed to be collected. Um, so it, displayed independence which was then collected through a group that the Bund set up when it was persecuted in, in Switzerland it had a dual leading structure one leading group in Russia one leading group in Switzerland and the Swiss group could receive all that money and then funnel it into all the directions that it wanted so it was really all all of that was connected and um it was the an important background of the nineteen o five revolution, which we usually only see as maybe something in in Vilnius and riga happening and then then um uh, workers rising of course that's the visible part, but the invisible part invisible part behind that is something that we could really trace very well through all these bundes networks
1: well, thanks for this yeah, I mean, let's stay with all of these um practices, actually, like practices of activism. Um, for me, this is also then connected to, again, the cone bendit lecture or anecdote from the beginning and the mentioning of Marek Edelman and um, how important the Bund was as a kind of anti-fascist force in the interwar period and how this um, kind of um, prepared Bundes activists um, in the interwar period to... Um, what was happening in the Second World War, the Holocaust, and kind of prepared a spe- specific, I think, um type of physical resistance and self-defense and also um, the documentation of anti-Jewish crimes. I, I see so many bunds being kind of the initiator of these movements in my own work, uh, and generally you see it all around. So yeah, let's talk about these practices in detail. Um, and how this prepared kind of um, the resistance movements during the Second World War. Mm.
0: So one thing, one very important thing that we should mention here is that um, among these patterns of activism that I tried to carve out in the first, one of the first chapters, and then try to look at how they played out elsewhere, one of these patterns of activism was self-defense. So the Bund was the first... Organization that actually, in in the case of pogroms, nineteen after the Kishinev pogrom, nineteen o three, is also connected to that one Bundes, um, um huge uh, annual uh, assembly um, called for. We have to be conscious uh, of uh, anti-Semitic attacks, and we do not go back to what other organizations do, which is appealing. Uh, uh, um, to higher authorities to help and save us. No, we arm ourselves and we fight back. So and um, this part of self-defense really becomes an important, even though essentially there, there were many Bundes involved, but not all of them, but it becomes an identity factor within the Bundes movement of that organization that fights back and it also makes it very cool so uh, the uh, the group like the Kleiner Bund emerges which are really kids, 8-9 year old kids and they try to be bundes and play bundes which at that point also is very dangerous uh, and and then so there are many stories also where they um, barely survive <laughs> there the, uh, tends to be bundes because it was connected also to political violence not in a way uh, that it was violence of overthrowing a government but of defending oneself which was Connected to connecting the the meetings where they met, uh, uh, sh- sorry, protecting the meetings where, where they, when they met and um, against attacks from yeah black party groups or whatever um, or police, and it uh, was, was connected to securing the flag and other very important items and demonstrations to anti-pogromist um, um, self-defense organizations, which were not solely Bundists, but the Bundists were the driving force and they mobilized other, also non-Jews, into these um, organizations to fight back. Um, and that continued into also uh, con- protective groups in Poland. And in the interwar period, the Bund was very conscious of the rising, rising fascism all over Europe. And um so if you look at the let's say journals that appeared in in, in in Argentina in the 30s, you could see look at Spain all the time. Yeah. So, the, the, so this is really important um to to see there's something important happening. This is connected to us. Yeah. Um so they knew in a way that something very, very bad was about uh, to emerge and about to happen. Um in the, and this was also connected to a strong sensitivity, connected to relief work, the Jewish Labor Committee, for instance, which was not essentially Bundes, but something that I, in this, in this book, uh, try to establish as secondary Bundism, which is the, carrying the idea of the Bund to other organizations, which don't have the name of the Bund on it, but very many ideas of the Bund in it. And the Jewish Labor Committee, I think, was one part of these secondary Bundes organizations which um, collected uh, money. And also they had a veterans fund, which was, was a Bundes uh, um, uh, collection fund, for instance, which supported socialists uh, in Europe, which were persecuted. And, and, and very early also um, German socialists and some Jewish socialists, but not only. So it really became a, 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 the, the idea of create different kinds of relief, which then developed into resistance and very also high-risk activities like Marie Edelman smuggling weapons in and out of the ghetto, which is really, really, um, I don't know what to say about that. It's, it's just amazing to just to imagine that. Um, uh, so um, they also here again, it, these were often groups connected to Poly zionists sometimes led by Bundes, sometimes connected by Poly zionists sometimes trying to, for instance in Warsaw, trying to uh, get the Polish socialists aboard for a joint uprising. So also very complicated terrain that they tried to navigate in that uh, time. And it didn't always work out like in Poland, in Warsaw, for instance. Um, But... um, The idea here was to resist. They knew they couldn't win. But the idea was uh, that you had to act, you had to resist, and uh, that needed to be organized. And I think that in a strong way connected to the whole idea of what Buddhism was about, to not accept an oppressive reality. And even if it takes highest risk activism, um, you should not accept it.
1: Yeah, thanks for this. Um, really fascinating. Um, the study really intervenes in so many ways into the into scholarship on the Bund by, as you said, like bringing all of these stories together, conceiving of it as a social movement, and then finally this transnational component. Um, and in in your introduction, you you seem to be um, yeah, you're intervening into the study of international uh, transnationalism in general, not just um, specific to the Bund. But um, what was um, what did you think was missing um, about transnational studies generally in Jewish studies? You mentioned, I think, that transnationalism is somewhat essentialized in Jewish studies sometimes as kind of just. A given naturalized component of Jewish culture, without actually looking at how this is practiced. So I was, I wanted to hear more about um, your approaches to transnationalism um, and what's new about it.
0: Yeah, this is uh, f- from the conceptual part, very important to me, um, which is also connected to um, my work in, in migration studies. Because I think transnationalism, there are very different ways of writing transnationalism. I'm certainly not presenting the the, the, the catch-all solution here. What um, I wanted to uh, try to uh, create here is an approach that we need to write transnational organizational history, transnational political history, um, that we... Uh, in a, there are many brilliant studies on the Bund in different cities or on, on, on Jewish life and political life, on parties in different cities or in different countries, but they tend to hit boundaries when it comes to um, epochs like, or phases like um, revolutions. So this is like a natural selection for historians to say, we look at this and then later we look at that. Um, but it doesn't fit to lives. At the same time, also, uh, these many of these people don't stay where they were born. They go somewhere else. They go back. Uh, they have an idea of maybe going to Israel or Palestine. And then they don't because, or, or some Bundesim did, and then they didn't like it. And they went on to Argentina Um or they went to this place because they got tickets and then they got tickets to the other place. So it's very, yeah, it's, it's not the plant uh, emergence, the way that transnationalism then plays out in these biographies. And I wanted to approach, in coming back to the order. Um, uh, Leonola uh, quote that you have approached the history of the Bund in a very similar fashion. So it wasn't uh, pre- um, decided that the Bund needed to be a Russian organization when it was founded. That was the idea, but it played out very differently because things happen. Yeah, and part of that was under the control of the Bund, like and the idea of the Bund, like creating that second hat. Uh, the, the Central Committee, the Foreign Committee, the second part of the Central Committee in Switzerland. That was a conscious decision. But there were many things that happened which were not conscious decisions or not based on conscious decisions. They emerged and then Bundes acted with that, played with it. And what I try to, in a way that I try to intervene here is first that I try to present an organizational history of transnationalism that is very much connected to places to specific places even streets or quarters of cities that you can name and you can see how uh, transnationalism is a part of their life there that that they were not too busy that they um, to 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 be concerned with all of these questions but that they were rather truly important for the cultural life there And the other part of the transnationalism that I try to bring in here is that this had organizational effects back into Russia. So it was not just something that was taken out. Or into Poland that was taken out but it's really a network that creating so the Russian revolution or the Bundes participation in the Russian revolutions depended on that flow of monies it depended later also on intellectual exchange um, when the leaders were somewhere else the Polish and the American Bund they interacted very strongly and uh, sent delegates all the time and school networks were, were, were linked in a way so um, there is an organization core again to that but as it is a movement, it is something that needs to be analyzed as something that's practical and which is then very important, I think, also has its limits, has its boundaries. Some things were tried and didn't work. Others were uh, wanted from the, um, let's say, the organi- the, the, the organizations in New York want to be recognized as an external branch of the Bund, an external club of the Bund. And the Bund never did that. Yeah, the organization never did that. Even though they were part of that whole network, the party itself never accepted it, because it didn't fit uh, with the way that the Bund conceived itself from the organizational level. Later on, it was, in a way, but only as a supportive organization. It was never really taken fully for for granted. And the Bundes nevertheless did their work. <laughs> they nevertheless did what they usually did, um, but uh, organized differently, maybe then didn't create this or that union the way that they would have done in, uh, in Eastern Europe, but went into, let's say, for instance, the IGWU, and then sh- changed that union and <laughs> make it Bundist through creating branches that have Bundist activism in them. And so I think this is the way that I want to look at uh, transnationalism as something that is, again, on the streets practiced. So um, many parts of the book, I use the terminology of, of praxeology. And this is the sociological term or the sociological part that's coming into that book, that I think that we, if you look at histories of movements and societies, we have to look at how these things are being put in practice and which contingencies emerge from all these practices. And we have to follow them to wherever they are going.
1: Yeah, it's a really refreshing way to look at it, um, kind of not romanticizing, but also complicating the Jewish experience and human experience kind of in the 20th century that is so interconnected globally, right? So, yeah, I really love that about it. Um, So, let's see. Yeah, there is this internal contradiction, though. And you mentioned this before, um, with this guiding principle of Doikkeit, and then everyone seems to be constantly on the move, um, which of course is um, dependent on what is happening in Europe during the 20th century, Um, no doubt. But nonetheless, there seems to be this internal contradiction within the movement that at the same time makes this creation of a truly diasporic practice um, possible in a sense. But yeah, this transnationalism, which is a core feature of the Bund um, that has as its guiding principle a um, um, How did they kind of bridge this um, in their practices?
0: I th- um, th- th- this is one of the core questions of the book, and I think it also uh, speaks to um, how we perceive transnationalism. If we perceive transnationalism as something that is... Uh, Consisting of a rather de ground uh, up ungrounded, I don't know, a, a, a network that doesn't really have a connection to some form of the ground, uh, it is somewhere up there. Um, then um, it is a very different kind of transnationalism than the, the, the one that I see before me here in this study and in other topics that I look at, which is transnationalism that is on the ground. And that means people are in certain situations and in these situations they live certain lives and we have two ways of approaching these different ways of lives one is we think of these people as only in that let's say a city and in that economic situation defined in that city or we try to understand how this situation is connected to other situations not just by going up there on the level up there and saying okay there are like uh, class structures that are overarching Um, but um, no they are connected by practice they go to certain clubs and they do things that connect them and of course the downside of the study is that looking at it through this lens we see these people and what i found and we don't see the others yeah or We see them if the others are complaining about them. Uh, But uh, what I found so important here is that I found so many of these people again and again and again and again. And this is why I said, okay, this is not just a coincidence. This is a pattern. And this is a transnationalism that needs to be uh, examined here. And this then is very much compatible, I think, in a way with Doikai if we understand it as a practice. If we understand it as... A political program, which it was also, yeah, um, then it's not that compatible because then it's very much connected to the way the Bund and the party of the Bund tried to develop it. And that was so much connected to first Russia, then Poland. And this also is a way of looking at it the way the how how the Bund essentially what did not succeed. This is also a story that needs to be told. I'm, I'm so fascinated by it, but we don't have to uh, forget, or we should not forget, it did not succeed. Um, it succeeded in a way that it created a life world. yeah. But the class society was never really challenged by it. Nor was there something like a cultural autonomy emerging in some place, even though I th- still think this is a wonderful idea. But um, uh, it was put in practice through its own existence by the Bund, but never a political uh, institution in this or that country. So, um, and, and the Bund only aimed at creating that in Eastern Europe. And maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it should have, at some point, much earlier than it then, in a way, did after the war. Uh, have understood the truly global presence of Buddhism and its diaspora elsewhere and try to also uh, understand transnationalism there because it tried to focus on russia and everything played toward russia opponent and where there was so much potential particularly in argentina at some point and in new york of course as well or in other cities you could mention other cities also up to uh, rochester and the cities that we had which had um, um, Bundes branches, which have a strong imprint in the archives, so they must have meant something. Um, uh, yeah, and um, in this way, Deutschkite, I think, met a problem in migration connected to what we talked about earlier—the question of Yiddishkeit. Because as natural as Yiddish language was and remained also in interwar Poland in the Jewish communities and Jewish life in Poland, it was not the case in emigration. Spanish and English took over, and at some point the Bundes branches of the Arbeitering, uh, the Workmen's Circle. Um, and then also discussed that is uh, we have to change to English because it's a question of life or death. That's what they say. In the, um, but um, they never really make that move because it didn't work. It, it, it worked only in Yiddish. And this is something that they couldn't overcome. And this is something that could to some extent be um, prolongated in a way in existence toward youth culture and youth camps and trying to secure that, but it never really developed an idea of how to shift into how to create a world, recreate Buddhism in a world that is not Yiddish speaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So you just mentioned, and this is really how I wanted to end this conversation, also kind of my last question, and then there's one more. Um, Yeah, is Bundist history a history of failure, ultimately? Um, We've started out by saying that the Bund is mostly forgotten. It clearly didn't succeed. Um, fascism, of course, was by far the 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 power or the force that destroyed it. But there were other other components too. For instance, um, yeah, the migration to the United States and kind of cooptation by capitalist um, structures, I would say also, and not to mention, of course, um, linguistic assimilation. But is it really a history of failure or can we? is there something present still kind of today of these practices that we could return to? What is the political relevance for today, especially now that people are saying that there's a left, um, kind of a new left forming right now with uh, capitalism really in utter crisis.
0: Yes. Um, so one of the earlier books in English um, was called The Politics of Futility. And the, this is the story of the Bund as a failure. And, and this book uh, essentially takes uh, a state Oriented, maybe even Bolshevik-oriented um, uh, end goal of political movements, and judges the Bund by that uh, end goal. Um, and from that regard, of course, it's a failure. But the Bund never aimed in this direction. So we have to look what the Bundists aimed at. The Bundists wanted to topple class society, which, and then, as we know by now. Any movement failed, so this is not something that we can we can uh, put forward as failure, um, or as, as as something that is unique to the Bund. Uh, it's a larger question. Um, so what what else did they look at? What they asked? What did they? What else did they want to achieve? It was to change a life world. It was to create a Yiddish speaking life world. It was to create a secular Yiddish culture. It was to create a self-consciousness among Jews uh, of their own individual or collective culture outside of the realms of religion or assimilation. Um, it was an idea of self-organization. It was an idea of solidarity, um, not just toward the Bund, but also you could see it in, in the Americans writing very much to black people, to... Um, uh other oppressed people elsewhere. Um and not just by word, also by practice and very much also in the schools and the education. It was a humanitarian idea, essentially, in the core of the Bund, always connected with with a popular Marxist idea of self-organization. And looking at that, I would say it was a tremendous success. It um and the transnationalism is part of explaining that success, because it was, a f- if it were a failure, it would not have made any sense to try to do that again in New York or Buenos Aires. Uh, to the contrary, it was so important that people created these groups against all odds and met and organized groups and then yeah, shaped something which is still exists today in a different pattern, but in a way, it still exists in the, the, the workman's circle. Institutions like that, which were very much influentially shaped through Bundism, um, so I do think uh, from that regard it is it was a tremendous success it had its own organizational shortcomings which uh, then also met something that can't be held against it which was the German uh, mass murder of Euro- East European Jews and we don't know how things would have played out in another way but the Holocaust really changed that story to an extent that we can't hel- hold against the Bund uh, to the contrary, the Bund showed that it was so convinced of itself that it still continued to, to do its own practices under these conditions and tried to educate people in Yiddish and, in the ghettos and so on. So it's, it's really um, um, a very strong conviction of this recreation or creation of a life world. And uh, today, I think we, it is it is an ambiguous. Um, so I think there's there's a, I can see that in. United States, parts of Canada, but also um, in Israel, particularly among the left, there is a strong idea of looking back at the Bund, and in a way, they are looking at, at the Bund very creatively, and uh, yeah, trying to think of which of these ideas are um, interesting for today. And you can see, this is these aren't too too few. There are many ideas. This isn't then exactly what the Bund probably would have done, but um, it is uh, inspired by Buddhism and Bundist ideas. And uh, I think in that regard, the, Bund, the Bundist idea of cultural autonomy, the Bundist idea of um, accepting statehood, but trying to recreate or uh, trying to create spaces Um, for different groups within that statehood, um, have an idea of multicultural, multi-ethnic coexistence in a very productive way, not just acceptance, but in a very productive coexistence. I think they are pretty important for our day and age when we try or when we are facing a world where we we are the first generation, but at least one of those generations that understands that nation states um, don't really match their population and this is a challenge that nation states have not overcome by themselves um, other than by ethnic cleansing and uh, so uh, the way here that the Bund proposed was I think and it still remains interesting.
1: Absolutely yeah I think the new left definitely should look to the Bund um, take inspiration from its internationalism and transnationalism Um, and all of these um, practices that you laid out, um, very important. For my final question, I would just like to know if you're working on a new project um, that you can share with us and whether the Bund has influenced it in some way um, or not.
0: That's a good question. Um, so yes, uh, of course, I'm working on. Yes, it has actually influenced it. Is, um, so uh, I think right in the first lines of this uh, of this book, I'm writing about that the Bund uh, understood its work as Kampf für unsere Recht, uh, which is the, the struggle for our rights. And I think the overarching overarching topic uh, in my research in diff- on different topics, also in German history, is. Uh, struggles for for collective rights, Um, particularly also struggle for human rights and mobilizations for rights. And of course, Bund, the Bund fits into that completely. And now I'm very much looking at um, the way borders, I'm I'm working largely on border studies and and how borders uh, change societies that are creating borders and how that, Is also connected or tried uh, or uh, antagonized by um, right movements, um, human rights movements, and other basic rights movements that are connected, uh, I think, to to the core idea that the Bund probably would have also agreed with that um, borders of nation states create more problems than they resolve and that um, the fight for rights is something that cannot be reduced to one group living within these boundaries and not to other groups, but that they are intersecting and that they are connected.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Um, shout out to all of those border abolitionists that are working very hard to get rid of this, um, as a metaphor and of of course, as a physical, um, thing that is spreading across the world. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this is a great way to end this uh, wonderful conversation and something big to look forward to. Um, I would like to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and, um, to everyone out there, this was Frank Wolf, and we were talking about his book, Yiddish Revolutionaries and Migration, the Transnational History of the Jewish Labour Bund, which came out with Haymarket Books. Um, this book, I think, is mandatory reading. Um, so go read it, um, use it in your classrooms and buy it for your libraries. Um, thank you, Frank, again. And uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This is Miriam Scholli-Schultz for the New New Books Network. Seid gesund!